0: Our featured BBB Give.org accredited charity seal holders for this episode are A Leg to Stand On, Boulder Crest Foundation, Defenders of Wildlife. To find out more about these and other BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders, go to (laughs) Give.org.
1: You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode.
0: Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving, and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. Those of you who know me appreciate that I'm really into learning, and I want to make sure that I'm up to date on the latest information that can help me with the work that I'm doing, both at the Wise Giving Alliance and my other volunteer responsibilities. Some of you also know that for the last six years or so, I've been teaching at the master's degree level at Columbia University's School of Professional Studies in the Nonprofit Management Program. And one of the reasons I'm teaching is that back then I was recruited by my good friend and guest on the show today, Cindy Lott. Well, if you listen to a previous podcast that we've done together, you'll know that she is one of these people who's always in the middle of getting something new off the ground. And she pops in and sprinkles her magic onto projects. They take off and then magically she moves on to the next thing. Now, those of you who were kids around the time that I grew up would imagine someone like Mary Poppins. She just pops in, fixes something or creates something new. And then once it's settled and ready to go, she moves on to the next thing. Well, she's at it again. She's at it again. And as it turns out, The Lilly School of Philanthropy at Indiana University has decided to create a Phil D program that is a Doctors in Philanthropic Leadership program. And guess who's been asked to help develop this new program? You got it. My friend and our guest, Cindy Lott. And I'm happy to report, too, that I'll be teaching in this program And so we thought it would be great to bring Cindy on just to talk about this latest venture and why the Lilly School, in fact, decided to launch it. Cindy, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast.
2: Art, it is so wonderful to be here with you again. Thanks for having me on today.
0: So Cindy, let's jump into this first question of why did the Lilly School decide to do this at this point? And, you know, we all appreciate the importance of leadership, especially now. I'd like to link what you believe is the importance of leadership with this this program that you're now a part of.
2: Well, I'm very honored that the IU Lilly Family School of Philanthropy asked me to come and help them launch this program. It's actually been years in the making. For some of you who may know a lot about the Lilly School, you won't be surprised that they are once again venturing into something new. For your listeners who are maybe not as familiar, I first encourage you to to head to the IU Lilly Family School's website, um, which is under redevelopment, as most websites seem to be these days, but soon there will be a separate, separate piece around the school, and then a separate piece around the actual research. The Lilly Family School of Philanthropy was the first school of philanthropy in the world. It may be the only one at this point, still. And they offer undergraduate degrees in philanthropic leadership and studies. They also have master's degrees both uh, on campus and online. But they importantly started the first PhD in philanthropic studies. And that remains the one in the world. We have amazing students, we have amazing faculty. And at some point, the Lilly Family School recognized that a lot of what happens in our sector, obviously, there's a lot of research to be done in a field that is essentially only about 30 years old. There's also a lot to be done in terms of applied research, which is what the D is. This is the first philanthropic doctoral programs, professional doctorate in philanthropic leadership specifically, and it is dedicated to applied research. So we can talk about that more, but the Lilly School felt very strongly from talking to the faculty, from talking to uh, Dean Amir Pasek. It's really important to the school to take that research and the research of other institutions, um, both academic, think tanks, all of them. And really see how we can harness it to help solve some of the biggest challenges uh, in civil society, in the philanthropic space. And philanthropic space, that arena is defined very, very broadly by the school and by the Phil D program to encompass all of philanthropy, nonprofits, etc. And including partnerships with for-profit and also government. So the role of the philanthropic uh, sector and how we can think about solving some of these major challenges through evidence-based proposed solutions. So it is a commitment on behalf of the Lilly School, not only to the students who are all mid-career, senior career, senior level career professionals uh, and executives for most part, it is really a commitment to the sector itself. Every single one of the proposed projects that these students will be working on are intended to be put back out into the field they are intended to be disseminated. And then as part of the curriculum here is really thinking about how you will disseminate and work with collaborators, work with partners to try to help move the needle on some of these large issues.
0: Cindy, tell us a little bit about the program's curriculum. What's covered?
2: Sure. It's, this is an executive style doctoral program. It's three years, which means that everybody that comes in already has some form of a graduate degree. Uh, we take folks from all walks, all different types of professions. So we are agnostic about the type of degree you have. You know, whether it's MBA, MPA, JD. We do have people that have uh, PhDs already, MDivs. We are agnostic about any of that. Our arts administration. But coming in with a graduate degree means you already have a running start and understanding of what the academic environment will be in a graduate school. So it is only three years, but it's an intensive three years. You go straight through courses, ad suriatum, one after the other for two straight years. And then in your third year, not unlike a PhD program, you except that it's only one year, you are then working on your actual project and writing up your sixth chapter. It's not a dissertation, but it is a project and with all of the chapters and the writings that, uh, in lieu of a dissertation, what we call the Applied Research Project, the ARP, and you spend your last third year focused on that and working with a faculty committee to make sure that you get done in the three years. And then in three years, you, we, you will have earned your field D. We will be graduating our first cohort in 2026.
0: So the world certainly needs leaders, leaders of all stripes and in all professions. What are you seeing, Cindy, in the nonprofit sector in particular, that is crying out for greater training, leadership, applied information for leaders in the nonprofit sector? And how do you envision this program contributing to helping to address some of those concerns?
2: I love this question. One of the greatest attributes of our sector is that it is so interdisciplinary and that it has so many fingers and so many pies, if you will. I always have said that name a sector and I will tell you some nonprofit aspect that goes on in that sector. It is just so important right now that people understand the role that philanthropy and the nonprofits are playing in helping civil society and working with the other two sectors the big issues that we have going on now cannot be resolved by just one sector. It, I think, we recognize as a as a society, it's not going to be just government. It's not going to be just the for profit sector. It's going to take, and, it's, and it can't just be philanthropy. It's going to take collaborations and partnerships and understanding those roles. It's more complex than ever. The nonprofit sector also has a lot of structural uh, complexity to it. It takes a lot to understand the different forms, whether that's legal form or in terms of the way that financial resources move through our sector globally in particular, how to get resources to specific communities that may be underrepresented. There are so many challenges right now. It goes beyond management and good management is certainly needed, but it's actual leadership in trying to envision what is coming. I know that you've spent a lot of time thinking about future state of this sector. And I think that plays a big role here in leadership is thinking about where we're going to be, not only in 50 years, but in 150 years, as lots of other things are changing around us. This particular degree has three prongs, and it's all in the name of the program. It's philanthropy, leadership, and it's inquiry. So, I often have said to our students who are very seasoned, we all appreciate opinions. We appreciate their well informed opinions. But what we're after in this program is actual evidence based proposed solutions. And this applied research aspect of this program, we take very seriously that students are to be looking at actual data and evidence and research that's being produced, not only at IU, as I mentioned, but other institutions, and really seeing how they can harness and apply that research to these big challenges that they as leaders have seen. I think it's gonna be really exciting to see what their projects all look like. We have 19 students right now in this cohort, this very first and inaugural cohort, and it will be amazing. I've worked with all of them as their first faculty member and and watching them and working with them even as they move through the program with other faculty. And it's gonna be fascinating to see how these projects get deployed, if you will, out in the sector.
0: Well, I had a chance to meet the students, and they're all fantastic. But what really struck me was that while we can all agree that studying at this level is a privilege, the students, for the most part, have not come from privileged backgrounds. This is an incredibly diverse group of people taking this program, and I wanted to just hold that up. Was this intentional, and how did you recruit these students?
2: Yeah, I mean... The cohort model is very important to this entire program. It is an asynchronous program. It has a lot of synchronous optional aspects to it that you can join in as much as you can, both within the program and also within the school and even with IU beyond. But the cohort aspect of it makes it just really uh, that much more important that the cohort really feel like they are cohering, as it were. And they have. It's been astounding watching them as they support each other. They really get to know each other. When we're looking at We're looking for really far-reaching aspects of different types of projects. Everybody, when they apply, has to at least give us some idea of what their proposed project would be, what area they're looking to study and to then move forward on. And so we're looking for a good mix of those projects. In addition, we're looking for a good mix of students. We want our student body leaders, all that they are already. We want them to represent the sector and civil society. We want them to reflect different parts of the country, of the world, of lived experience, of professional backgrounds, of educational backgrounds. And so we are looking for a good mix. We're not just taking, as I've mentioned in our recorded info session, we're not just looking for the top 25 students. Everybody that applies to this program already has stellar credentials, great recommendations. We're really looking for the right mix. I feel like very important as well that we have that in our faculty. Our faculty are about half core faculty from the IU Lilly School. And then we have half who are adjunct faculty, like you, who have terminal degrees and have incredible professional practice backgrounds. And we want the faculty to also come from very different and diverse backgrounds as well.
0: Well, you achieve achieved that. I wanted to just sort of get into a little bit of some of the approaches, maybe. And I know you mentioned the applied aspect of it. And that would explain some of it. But what else do you think really distinguishes what you're trying to do here from what people might see in other programs?
2: Yeah. And there is a proliferation right now of leadership, PhDs online, on campus. There's a lot, there are a lot of things that people could choose from right now. And it's a great question about why they would choose this particular program. When we're looking at students, we're looking for folks that have not only a background specifically in the nonprofit or the philanthropic sector, but also if they have worked in the other sectors, but worked for a long time alongside the philanthropic sector. We want to make those bridges. We want to help develop those in a shared language so that we can be working together and collaborating on some of these major, major issues in society. As I mentioned, you know, this field is not that old. It's only been about 30 plus years that it was really, quote, recognized as a field. Our researchers in the field that come with PhDs, they come from all different aspects of interdisciplinary study. But they've created, and particularly at IU, there is kind of the intellectual cache of of a place that holds so much research and so many researchers in this space. Now the question is, what can we do with this? Now that we have data, which did not exist in the same way as it did, you know, 50 or 100 years ago in this space, And in particular, there are a number of data initiatives in our space right now on the nonprofit platforms that are being created, the National Center on Charitable Statistics at Urban Institute, where I'm also a fellow, that is being relaunched. There are all sorts of platforms for data, Aspen Institute, Cynthia Schumann-Ottinger, who's been working for a long time on federal data in this space. What are we going to do with all this data now? The question of really harnessing it and saying, what can we do? Who could do this? We are picking leaders here to come with ideas of projects that they have seen as they have walked many around many blocks professionally in their careers about recurrent issues or new challenges that they have never seen before in their careers that are now popping up. We want them to identify those and now go in search of all of that good data that has been created in the last decades and really bring it to the sector with some proposed solutions. It's not because they're going to solve everything with just their project. No one is under an illusion of that, although it would be lovely if we had some that turned out that way. What we talk about in this program is next stepping something of building on initiatives that have been done before and assessing and appraising those initiatives and then saying what would be the next thing that we need. And one of the gifts I've told these students, um, even in my class and I know when we talk is that it's not only about what literature and research is already there when they do their literature review for their project. They also will include a practice review of these previous initiatives that have been done. It's not just to say, did it work or did it not? But what can we now do for the next step that will help move it forward? And part of that gift is also saying to researchers, here's what we actually still need you to research, of holding up research gaps that say, we're practitioners in this space and what we really need you to research is X. And that is part of what they are also doing in this project is giving something back to the research community to say, here's what we really need in order to continue moving forward to help solve X issue that we've identified.
0: I'm really glad you brought up this point about what's next. Because as our society evolves... There will always be new questions for us to research and to get answered so that we can continue to see our sector evolve and programming and nonprofits continue to meet the evolving needs. I guess my question for you was, what can you do with the program to make sure that it is constantly refreshed and renewed?
2: Well, we're going through this the first time right now, so it is being refreshed and renewed as we speak. You know, the program was first designed several several years ago, perhaps a bit more than that as it moved through the approval process with Higher Education Commission, with the university itself. And so when I came last year, when I joined, um, I immediately, you know, from past working with me, I love curriculum design. I love looking and thinking about how we build a true curriculum within a program um, for an educational trajectory. And it was clear that there were some changes already that needed to be made just in the years since it had first been envisioned to the time that we were now ready to do launch. And so as I was both hiring outside faculty and as I was looking at the curriculum, it was clear that we already needed to be building in certain other aspects and or kind of moving the order of courses and things like that to really address some of the baseline that I think is now evident. We are also doing a lot. We're educators. We want to make sure we're assessing as we go. We do adaptive learning. and We are modeling good educational and teaching behaviors here by making sure that we're asking a lot of questions of the students, of the faculty, and also of the sector. You know how much I love talking to folks all over the sector. I appreciate that people will spend time and energy talking with me about what they think is important, and we are building that into the curriculum. And I speak with every single faculty member as they're designing their courses um, or redesigning them and thinking about how we keep them fresh, even for the next cohort as it's coming in. We're already talking about that. So it's imperative in this program. There are not electives in the program. So it's an interesting curriculum design uh, for someone who enjoys it. I love talking to the Center on Teaching and Learning, which I do. And I just went to a conference on curriculum design for distance programs and also for graduate school and professional schools. And it's really fascinating because we have students from every walk. You need a curriculum that really meets people wherever they are on all of these different projects. And that's a challenge, but one we're up for. And I think the curriculum, as we've got it now, is an excellent starting point that we will just continue to revamp as time goes on.
0: So, Cindy, you know that our sector is very interdependent. You mentioned that even in one of your replies to my question. I am curious how you see partnerships and collaborations developing with industry leaders to help bring out what these experts in your program have to offer and bring how do we yeah. net people through this program
2: It's a great, great question, and it's one that we're trying to build in as time goes on here, and it runs both ways. At the beginning, when I think about curriculum, apart from the formal curriculum that's been created, I'm also creating what we'll call a shadow curriculum, (laughs) for lack of a better term. A whole series, a speaker series that runs alongside of this that the students can have as one of their optional synchronous moments that are also recorded and then posted on their particular Canvas sites and that is the, what I call the Phil D Forum. And we want to be bringing sector experts and people that have real perspectives on what is needed in the sector, expertise that comes in the sector. Um, we are starting that Phil D Forum very, very soon. And our very first one is actually on DEI and leadership and be an excellent talk by Dr. Edna Chun. And we are looking to bring that in, that expertise into the curriculum. We also expose the students to all of our philanthropy research workshops and all of the other speakers and the speaker series that IU Lilly School has. And I will also just mention we're always looking for partnerships. This is one aspect of collaboration we would love also, which is fellowships and, frankly, resources for bringing students who otherwise cannot afford to do the program. As a state university, it's still much more affordable than a lot of other programs, but it's still a big investment, both in time and financial resources for for the students to join. And we would welcome any fellowship opportunities. We have had some. Balsius Family Foundation has been very good about this, and Lilly School is also supporting some of the students, but we welcome that. Then, on the other end, as we are thinking about how we will disseminate these projects and solutions, we are asking and requiring of the students that they do public presentations, that they invite their own networks. That they go find speaking gigs, that they actually do some aspect of publication, even if it's not for the entire project, but some aspect, even within trade publications, of really explicating what the issue is that they've been working on for these years, what it is that they are putting out in the sector. So, again, dissemination and distribution of proposed solutions is actually an integral part of this program. We have an entire course that will be really focused on having students make a plan for that so that they will have that at the ready for their third year. And within that, it means we hope that we are connecting students to the conferences for various associations, to leadership in different areas, whatever their particular project area is. We have students working on projects on a very, very broad range. So there's no one particular way to go about dissemination and collaboration on these issues. But they will have to make a plan, whether it's in higher education projects, whether it's in the arts, fundraising, policy, whatever their particular area is, they will have articulated who their audience is and who they would like to be reaching out to. So we welcome, again, all of these folks are mid or senior level executives. We really welcome for the organizations and different areas within the sector or the other two sectors to be inviting our students to talk, uh, to present, et cetera. They really are top level and they're moving forward on a very specific issue that they have chosen. And we would love to have them invited out and they are also going to be seeking those opportunities.
0: Well, that's great because I'll tell you, many of them already have their own networks. I mean, we're talking about people Huge. who are senior in our field who decided for a variety of reasons that they wanted to continue their education in a program like this. But what can you say, Cindy, not only about their networks, but about the networks that they're developing by getting to know each other, because mm-hmm. some of them may not have known each other. I just think about the power yep. of the connection that they're going to get being together for a period of years and how they're going to get to know each other and what wonderful work can come from that. That's one question. The second question, tell us about some of the students. Who are they? I mean, you don't have to give their names necessarily, but
2: mm-hmm. give me some
0: idea of the backgrounds of some of the students in the program.
2: One of my favorite parts of being the director of this program and also with uh, being faculty is that I really get to know a lot of the students through all the one-on-ones that we have. And and of course the admissions process alone is just eye-opening to see all of the different kinds of backgrounds that people have in applying. So this is great. Let me talk a little bit about this. One of the things that I think is so important, and I and I talked to the faculty about this and, and the dean about this as well, is that these students, as you said, have huge networks. They've been in the field anywhere from 15 years to some of them, it's 35 plus. And they really have so much to offer the Lilly School as well, right? They have a lot to offer our doctrinal faculty in thinking about how research can be used, how it is truly used when you're out in the field. Again, what type of research is useful, but also just the way it's presented to practitioners who want database solutions and evidence-based solutions, but it can be sometimes hard to find And even if you found it, it can be hard to translate at times. So there are these students are both learning some of that in this program, obviously, but they are also teaching, if you will, in some way, the research community that this is the way that we actually need to use the data that you're producing. So it's very much a two-way street with these students because they are so senior level. They are, they have their own WhatsApp group. Some of them have met. It's funny, I had a synchronous session about a month ago where two of the students had just come from a meeting up for a drink in Lisbon, <laughs> in Portugal, because that's where they both happened to be at the same time. They are eager to see each other. The residency where they, you know, they were on Zoom together, but then when they came together for the residency, they really, really wanted to spend time together. We actually had only envisioned that there would be one residency at the beginning. And if they wanted a second one, so be it. But they all said absolutely, adamantly, that they wanted a second residency. So they will be meeting again next August where and and we will have that all formulated for them. But in addition to that, they will be meeting the next cohort because it doesn't just end with their own cohort. They are also going to be... Is part of the second cohort of the Phil D, right? The triculating class of 2024. And that's really, really important. We're going to have them overlap for a day. I told them they get to be like the seniors in high school talking to the freshmen, you know, about how to get in your locker. They're going to be able to really tell them about what it looked like that first year and give them some tips. But this networking that they are doing amongst each other is a lifetime professional association This is not just the three years they're in the program. It is forever. And I think our sector is no different than any sector. If you've been doing it long enough, you may become specialized. You may have a broad network, but not really realize just how much there is still to go and more to come in terms of the different areas of interest and practice out there. And these 19 students already represent such an incredible, diverse and disparate set of backgrounds. And they are truly sharing with each other different perspectives. And it's a safe area for people to explore. And that's that's one thing that we haven't really chatted about here. But I think as people are thinking about this, not only was this particular class that we have right now, this cohort, first adopters, they knew that this would be something new and they knew that they needed to be extra flexible as we were figuring some things out with the first cohort. But they also are very open, which is not always a given. Once you've reached mid or senior career status, right? Sometimes people become very comfortable in their roles and feel good about they've kind of got their world carved out and they're good with it, especially after a lot of the tumult that we've had in our sector in the last years and out in society, it's just can feel good that way. But here we have students that are saying, nope, I want to go outside my comfort zone again. I want to feel like what it feels like to not know things again in a classroom in a classroom setting and to be able to ask questions and we want them to know we talked a lot about this in the residency it's really my favorite group and age group uh, of students to work with are people that are saying i actually know a lot but i want to know a lot more and i'm not scared to ask those questions and this program is intended to be a place that they can do that and do it safely with each other so that they can really learn from each other as much as the faculty
0: well, here's my last question, Cindy, because we're just about out of time. But, you know, you're heading this program and you must have some hopes and expectations for these future graduates and the potential impact on the field of philanthropic leadership. Tell us
2: about them. Yeah, and it's interesting. I had one really deep desire that I was almost fearful to mention because we had so much going on with this first cohort. And then they said the same thing out loud to me, (laughs) which is, it is fantastic that each of these students is going to have their own applied research project. That alone, that's the goal. That's the stated goal. And we love that. But I also feel strongly to your earlier question, Art, This group of students, any cohort of students at this level, just it's so powerful. I believe the word you used and can be can be so powerful to think about what they could accomplish if they put their minds on one thing (laughs) together. And kind of in the back of my mind, I thought, well, maybe by the second or third cohort, we could have them thinking about an overall project that they may be able to talk about or at least opine about or really give their perspectives on as a group, not just their individual projects. And sure enough, it did not take probably two months into the program before the students themselves raised this with me and mm-hmm. you know one of the topics as an example that really is a big deal is how do we define philanthropy and mm-hmm. what is considered equitable well, you know equity and ethics underpin everything in this program and it's a big it's a big challenge right now to think about what gets to count as philanthropy who gets to count it how does that manifest whether it's through a tax code or whether it's through how we think about donations, how we produce data around that. The students are really thinking about this, I think, already and through the courses and, and really having big discussions around it and thinking, wouldn't it be great whether that topic or something else that all of us are thinking about and perhaps build an aspect of that into each of our projects so that we have this amazing cohesion around a specific topic for this cohort. So we'll see how that all plays out. But I do think it's just one way, one reflection of how this group of people working together for three years and then beyond are just such an incredible and powerful network. Not unlike Art, what you have created here with this podcast, the amount of people and amazing people that you have interviewed on this podcast, this is a force for good. These are thoughtful people that want to do big things. And wherever we can get cohorts like that created, I'm all for it. I appreciate that you have done that. I appreciate that you have enabled others of us to do that. And I'm really, really honored to be helping in that process, even one small part um, with the IU Lilly School's new Phil D program. So thanks a lot for letting me talk about that today, but also just generally leadership. And I'm grateful that you'll be teaching one of our leadership classes in the program as well, Art.
0: Thank you. And to our listeners, you've been listening to Cindy M. Lott, JD. She is the clinical professor of philanthropic studies, director of professional doctorate in philanthropic leadership, and she is the Stead Policy Fellow at the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. And believe me, she is in her element. There's such a glow about Cindy when She talks about this program and I'm so happy for her that Amir over at Lilly saw this also as a great opportunity to bring her over. I can see how much fun you're having, Cindy. I wish this program continued success. I hope it grows to the bounds that it can handle and that all of the students who go through it get everything that they anticipated and that our world, of course, benefits from that learning. Now, to all of you who are listening to this podcast for the first time, this is a weekly show and we don't spend a lot of money on advertising. So I want you to do a favor for me. I want you to subscribe to the show on any major podcast platform. And that way you'll be notified when all of the new episodes come out and you can download and listen. It's really important that you do that. And if you want to support the podcast financially, we'll accept that too. You can make a gift at G-I-V-E That's give.org. And we'll see you back here next week. Thanks for listening.
1: You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.org. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.